from Tom Study and the F170 Combox, it's F1 Nation with TC and me. This week, IndyCar legend Dario Franchitti gets us debating the best F1 cars ever. One of your questions starts an F1 Nation book club, and our special guest, Emanuele Pirro, tells us about records being broken, the harshness of F1 psychology, and the pain of being an F1 steward sometimes. And for the first time in a while, there's no Grand Prix for us to talk about. We've just had a weekend off from Formula One. Or AJ, have we? Well, I don't think you can leave it alone, TC. I think you might be addicted. But before we get to you, I actually had a really nice, relaxing weekend. And the reason I had a nice, relaxing weekend is that midweek... I was very much enjoying the lofty standard of F1 Esports. The Pro Series was back, and they are separated by hardly anything. It means that we get thrilling races, and unsurprisingly, I made a ton of noise. You love making a ton of noise. You say it's really tight between them, and you've been doing Esports for a while now. Is the standard just getting better and better each year? Absolutely. It's the amount of hours that they have to put into the game, TC. Like, if I say as a throwaway, oh, they wake up, load the game and that's their day it sounds like i'm being flippant that's the reality it really is a case that practice makes perfect for them when you've got the entire grid separated by seven tenths of a second you know that they really are logging the hours but it was very very entertaining we've got nine races to go in the championship those events are midweek and you can watch them on the f1 youtube channel and on sky sports there's loads of different ways to get involved very entertaining races they are too But TC, this weekend, I believe you were enjoying the real thing. I was enjoying the retro real thing. It was Goodwood Speed Week, which for those of you who don't know what that means, it's an amalgamation of the Goodwood Festival of Speed and the Goodwood Revival Meeting, which weren't able to take place this year due to COVID. But under very strict COVID rules, we all had face masks. It was behind closed doors. We did get three days of action at Goodwood and it happened over the weekend. And AJ, if I'm sounding a little bit like Barry White, it's because I did a lot of talking and had a lot of late nights, but I loved every minute of it. That's just standard practice for you, TC, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what? It was amazing. And it feels like a bit of a school reunion whenever you go there because the motorsport family comes together from every category. Yes, there's Formula One people there, but from other categories as well. People like Dario Franchitti, who you know we don't see at races. Wonderful to see him there. And then uh, what were the highlights? There were so many. I would say the 70th anniversary celebrations was was number one for me. Such a brilliant collection of cars. And then you had Jackie Stewart there driving them. Emerson Fittipaldi was there in the Lotus 72 in which he won his first race (laughs) in 1970 at Watkins Glen. And by winning that race, it meant that Jackie X couldn't win the championship. And Jochen Rint, who died just a few weeks earlier, became F1's only posthumous world champion. So to see Emo driving that car was wonderful. Damon in Sterling Moss's Lotus 18. It was just... I was a kid in a candy store. And uh, so that was fantastic, but also some amazing racing. Actually, Alex, I loved seeing Alex Brundle, who I know you do a lot of co-commentary with on the, the PLC. That guy 
is fantastic in an E-Type Jag. I mean, the thing is never straight. Whoa, 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 whoa. We, can, we, can't, we can't have any of this in the pod, <laughs> okay. TC. Being right. nice to Alex Brundle. I'm going to tell him, absolutely brilliant in uh, an E-Type lightweight Jaguar uh, in the TT, which was on Sunday night. It's a one-hour race. I don't think I ever saw him straight in that thing, but beautiful car control. And uh, I could almost see the grin from outside the car. He was absolutely loving it. So really impressed by him and lots of others. Andre Lotterer, who did one Grand Prix, he's a three-time Le Mans winner. He got out of the car yesterday evening and he said, I was born in the wrong era. I so wish that these were the cars I actually got to race. Do you think there's a lot of drivers that feel that way? I think there's a certain type of F1 driver who wish that they existed a couple of decades before. Who strikes you as another one on that lottery-like list? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, every time I go to something at Goodwood, I think, where is Sebastian Vettel? Uh, Vettel yes. would love the cars, and uh, I can see him going sideways in a in a Ford Anglia or whatever he wants to be driving. Uh, so I think <laughs> Seb would love it. I think Kimi Raikkonen is of that ilk as well. Funnily enough, I don't think Lewis is. I think Lewis is, lives right in the moment. And I think his adaptability within Formula One and how the cars have changed and yet he's repeatedly got the job done. I think, I'm not sure I could see Lewis enjoying those old cars quite so much. But of the young guys, funnily enough, I actually think Lando Norris would enjoy those cars. But I think he's a guy that just loves driving. And I could just see Lando having a lot of fun uh, in, in one of those cars. You know who really likes his motor racing history and doesn't always crow about it? Kevin Magnussen loves his motor racing history, knows his, knows his stats, knows his place in it, likes his place in motor racing. I think we'll see him at events like that in the future yeah. as well. And it's got us all nostalgic on F1 Nation because of a question that you put to Dario Franchitti. Dario, a whole bunch of Formula One cars are about to go on track, celebrating 70 years um, of our wonderful sport. As well as your fantastic career, I know you've got a real feel for the history. Um, have you got a favourite F1 car? A couple, really. Um, but the late 70s was when I first got into F1. And so it would be between the, the Brabham fan car, 312 T4, and the Lotus 79 and I think it's got to be Lotus 79 uh, really? yeah th- oh, the Brabham fan car was cool though Brabham fan car was cool I was quizzing Gordon about it the other day I love it it's just oh what a great thing but you know even seeing the Lotus 79 here um, in the paddock it just just looks right and with you know with Ronnie's helmet in it or, or, or Mario's helmet it just looks so special so that yeah Lotus 79 Brilliant. Well, I'm finding it harder to pick one. It's like trying to choose from your favourite children, isn't it? <laughs> so I know there's a hardcore of you out there who listen week in, week out. And we're very appreciative that you listen week in, week out. But there's a super hardcore out there who've been listening since the trailer. And on the trailer for F1 Nation, we said we were going to debate what the best... Formula One cars of all time were. And has it been a slightly confusing year where we might have forgotten to do that until right now? Yes, it has been. Taking Dario Franchitti's lead, he's suggested some classics there, TC. And he's not wrong with any of those cars. um, But can I just pick one? Now, this car... What are you going to throw into the mix? This car I'm about to mention is Poetry in Motion. The Brabham BT-52 World Championship winner in 1983 in the hands of Nelson Piquet. Just the most 
gorgeous looking car, arrow shaped. Gordon Murray, the designer, wanted to get as much weight over the rear wheels as possible to improve traction. So the radiators are very far back. It's got that 1500 horsepower BMW engine in qualifying trim. Can you imagine what that must have been like to drive? But also, this is the car, let's not forget, in which we saw refueling taking place properly for the first time in Grand Prix mm. racing. They'd been experimenting with it a little bit the previous year in 82, but this was the year that they went full on with the car design. It's got a small fuel tank for that reason. And, you know, Nelson Piquet won, what's it, three races. I think his teammate Ricardo Patrese won one. Renault threw the championship away at the last race in South Africa and Nelson stole it. And that was another car that was there at Goodwood last weekend in the hands of Nelson's son, Pedro Piquet. And to see it, every time he changed down, the flames coming out of the back of it, just (laughs) lovely, lovely, lovely. Really enjoyed seeing that car. How about you, AJ? You must have a favorite as well. I'm I'm just looking at pictures and you're right. It is such an arrow design i can see why you've gone for the brabham bt uh, 52 um there's a few that stand out for me uh the mp413 mika hakkinen's championship winning car from the first year i watched formula one in 1998 i think that is a beautiful design and livery combination i think that's such a clean looking race car it's wonderful the lotus 33 jim clark's lotus in that iconic green and yellow from 1965 but the one that stands out above all others for me, and it's going to be controversial, it's the Ferrari from 1990. The Ferrari from 1990, Alain Prost and Nigel Mansell's entry from 1990, the 641. It looks immaculate. It is it's everything that Formula One should be. It's a scarlet Ferrari. It's all seemingly in one beautiful aerodynamic shape. There's no raised nose. There's no flicks. At, there's no intricate barge boards. There's none of that nonsense. It looks like a svelte Coke bottle that they are racing on the circuit. And the ultimate, the ultimate accolade, it's the only Formula One car in New York's Museum of Modern Art. And there's a reason for that, because it's the best one. It's the best looking. And it's the one that I think that is the benchmark for all Formula One cars. AJ, that's not controversial. That is a beautiful car. (laughs) Couldn't agree with you more. I've got a little fact about that car, although it was actually uh, the, the previous year's car, the 89 car, uh, and, and the 90 car was just a, an evolution of it is that, yeah, but that doesn't work with my museum bit, does it, Tom? But th- <laughs> of course, it had the semi-auto gearbox on it, didn't it? John Barnard will tell you that the semi-automatic gearbox on that car uh, was introduced not to make the driver's life easier, not to prevent them from over-revving the engine and blowing it up. It was purely a packaging thing because there wasn't room in the cockpit for a stick shift. So then he thought, well, how do we get around that? <laughs> well, we better do it behind the wheel. We better have some paddles. So that was how that idea came about on that Ferrari, or, or in fact, the previous year's Ferrari, the 89 car, but it's the same model in effect. I've got one more, AJ. Cool. One more while we're talking about this. The Williams FW14B of 1992. Totally love that car. Uh, its record needs no introduction from me. Remember Mansell won the opening five races of that season and then the sixth race, he was looking good to win it till he had to come in and change tyres late in the race and then we had climbing all over the back of uh, Ayrton Senna to finish second. But such a beautiful car. Um, 
Adrian Newey at his absolute best. So silky smooth, all the lines. I love the fact that this, the entrance to the cockpit was so small. The wheel, of course, underneath the bodywork, not out of it which was so often the case uh, back then with the cars it had a brilliant Renault V10 although when you ask Alain Prost about this car or, or the 15C that he actually drove the following year in 1993 he will say yes the aerodynamics were very good but the semi-automatic gearbox and the active suspension <laughs> were not as good as the 93 McLaren because Alain tested the 93 McLaren at the end of 93. And uh, he got out and he just said, well, the main difference between the McLaren and the Williams that year was the Renault engine in the Williams. So there you go. McLaren's active suspension and semi-auto box was better, which I think might explain why Senna was so dominant at Donington in 1993 and the Williams were made to look slightly silly because he said the rear wheels when you were changing down would lock up. Uh, such was the Williams semi-auto box, whereas that didn't actually happen in the McLaren. There you go. Bit of history. And we would love to hear what your favorites are. Hashtag F1 Nation, your favorite F1 car from any era and why. Hashtag F1 Nation. Intriguingly, though, we've both gone for early 90s designs and i think there's a lot of that design aesthetic in the new rules and regulations with the way that the cars looked from 2022 well you described that ferrari as clean and i think that's what we're going to think with the new rules that come in in 2022 the cars are going to look very clean easy on the eye let's just hope that we, they can overtake each other we'd like your thoughts on your favorite f1 car of all time but we've also had one of your thoughts in that's right tc it's time for the mail back and usually this is the part where we just read out nothing but praise. It takes up five minutes of the pod and it makes TC and I feel great. So thank you for writing lovely reviews. We're not allowed to say them out, but we do read them all. Let's pose a question. Hashtag F1 Nation. We've been asked by Nave, who says, here's a question for the F1 Nation mailbag. What are your top books on F1, on its history, people, tech or whatever? My interest in the sport has only increased since I listened to the podcast. TC... Welcome to the fireside, to the very first F1 Nation book club. What are you picking? This is Jack and Ori. Uh, what a great question, Nave. Now, there are so many good books on racing. Um, it's very difficult to know where to start. If I was to pick two, I'm going to say my first one is a book that's just called Sterling Moss. It was published back in 1953. My first one is called Sterling Moss, and it's a biography of the great man. But slightly bizarrely, it was published back in 1953 before Sterling had really done anything. He didn't win his first Grand Prix until 1955, let's not forget. But it is a brilliant insight into the early life of Sterling and what sort of created the phenomenon that became Mr. Motor Racing. So it's a fascinating read written by a guy called Robert Raymond. I really recommend it. A very enjoyable read. Uh, and I learned a lot about Sterling. And of course, let's not forget that uh, he passed away aged 90 earlier this year. That maybe piqued my interest into getting hold of the book. But uh, my other one is How to Build a Car. And it's written by Adrian Newey. And there I was waxing lyrical about the FW14B from 1992, one of his books. But what he's done in this book is just gone through each of his cars and it's how to build an FW14B. And then he goes into the whole process of how he built it. Then it's how to build an RB6. 
And then he goes into, and it's just, you learn so much about him, the way he does it, the teams he works for, and also just how all of his designs are interlinked. You know, there are pieces, there are ideas on today's Red Bull that actually started on a Leighton House march back in the late 80s. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how things that work always work, it seems, in motor racing. And Adrian has got the experience just to carry the bits that work through. So a uh, fascinating book. Really recommend that as well. How to Build a Car by Adrian Newey. So those are my two. AJ, what do you got? Um, I've got three for you, TC. Uh, I've read it when I was quite young, but I think it holds up very well. It's a great account of Damon Hill winning his uh, world championship in 1996 from Richard Williams, who is a terrific journalist at The Guardian. And it's just his account of a year unfolding in Formula One. And it's the sort of book that you get a lot in America, where they write romantically about the sports over there in a way that it used to exist far more in the past, but you don't tend to get snapshot books in the same way that Races by Richard Williams provides a, a great account of 1996. Just takes you back there, takes you into the moment, what's important. He opens up with a description of the Formula One paddock, which uh, I found interesting as a young boy and held true when I went in there for the first time in 2015, which was... People are just desperate to be seen, to be talking to people who are influential. There's people loitering around looking to be seen, to be having a conversation. Uh, and the two that I would say are must-reads both strangely have the same title. I'm not saying ideas in publishing are, are limited, but they're both called Life at the Limit. Uh, Sid Watkins, who was Formula One's doctor for many years, writing a really interesting account. Um, he followed it up with another book, but Sid Watkins, through a really dangerous period of Formula One, his reflections on how safety was improved, the part he played in it, and his relationship with the drivers. That's a riveting read. But my favorite, and I always recommend this one, Graham Hill's autobiography, also called Life at the Limit. You might have to do, like TC said, have to dig around a few secondhand bookshops. But the whole thing reads like a 60s caper. It is a fantastic account of how much fun they clearly had in that era of motor racing. It's a wonderful, wonderful account of the sheer joy of being a racing driver. There was much less TV coverage. So, you know, you're going to be learning a lot of stories through a book like that, that you wouldn't have seen or heard about because there just wasn't the attention on the sport. Just while you're mentioning uh, Graham Hill, uh, reminds me that Damon... Uh, wrote a brilliant autobiography called Watching the Wheels. You, yeah. uh, he wrote it very recently, but it was a, a brilliant account. And I don't think I'm the only person who has interviewed Damon uh, many times, known him for a while, and yet read that book and learned so much about him. Anne Bradshaw, who did uh, the Williams PR, she said she felt she only really understood Damon having read that autobiography so yeah that's another good one i mean aj we could go on forever and i think we will i will just we'll just bring this back every week there's not a grand prix we'll come back with new suggestions thank you for the question nave really appreciate it just like the cars if you've got an undiscovered f1 book that you would like to bring to the other members of the nation's attention we would very much appreciate it hashtag f1 nation well, in time-honoured F1 Nation fashion, I say that, we've existed since May, but we have taken a long time to get to our very special guest this week. He is a driver who had an incredible career in motor racing, but you might know him better now for being an F1 steward. He will be taking up that role at the forthcoming Grand Prix in Imola. 
40 Grand Prix as a Formula One driver, TC caught up with Emanuele Piro. Well, I think we might have a new Italian correspondent here on The Nation. I'm joined by five-time Le Mans winner, Emanuele Piro. Emanuele, lovely to see you. First of all, Lewis Hamilton. Now, you're a man who's been at the top of your sport for many years. Just what are your thoughts on Lewis equaling Michael Schumacher's win record of 91? Well, in in a way, it's mixed feelings because I I love history of motorsports. So, uh, you know, when the pole position record of uh, Ayrton Senna was beaten um, and when the number of wins uh, and uh, it's somehow... Uh, I feel certain records need to stay there but the world is evolving and and so uh, I think he the way is 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 driving now and what he's doing and the passion he shows towards the past as well the respect that he shows towards Senna and towards Schumacher I think it it couldn't be there couldn't be another better person than than him i think the sport is evolving so much and every new star somehow he goes more towards perfection than than the star of before um and 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 also the the sport is changing so whenever there are questions like who was the greatest of all time i think this is a question impossible to answer also to compare statistics is not that um, uh, straightforward because the number of races uh, now are a lot more and a lot yeah uh, a lot more races the longevity of the driver is a lot more like all the guys of the 60s and 70s some just died too early sadly and some retired because I, they felt it was it was a time to pull the plug so I think we should never fall in, in, in the trap of uh, establishing who is the best. I think at the top top of the rostrum there is room for more than one person and each one deserves, each one of the greatest deserves, deserves uh, his spot. But I really like the way Lewis paid respect to Michael Schumacher uh, and especially the helmet from Mick. We're living in the present. Formula One and motorsport is, is, is a sport of technology, so we have to look at the future. But to see res- such a respect for the past, I think it's, uh, it's very special. Emanuele, you've had drivers nipping at your heels. You know, you're a five-time Le Mans winner. How difficult is it to stay at the top of your game in the way that Hamilton has? Uh, at the slightest, I don't want to compare our, our careers, of, of course, but um, um, in a way to achieve a status or a certain result, it's not difficult to find the motivation because you are just hungry, hungry, hungry. And also you are a little bit careless because when you're younger, you just dare more and you think less and, um, and, and, and things happen in an easier way, in a way. But then to keep to keep staying at that level and for me one of the strengths of Lewis Hamilton is uh, that he keeps improving so much and there's a lot of technical details that unfortunately our sport is so difficult to 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 explain so a lot of people miss out small technical details that only the people in Mercedes know how he prepares a lap it's not by coincidence that he always scores pole position at the last lap because everything is a sort of a preparation and and I think those special people they find they have the ability and and they find their best 
energy when it counts. And I think this is this is what really makes a difference. And uh, and what I like because. Unfortunately, it, people do not realize from outside how difficult it is to keep, uh, to, to be at such a level. You know, one second a lap, faster or slower, it makes a great deal of difference. And to find the energy in yourself to be at that high level for such a long time, when you have plenty of results, when you have plenty of money, when you have plenty of ideas of what to do besides, besides what you're doing, it, it really requires a very special mind, so we have to take our hat off for somebody like him. We do indeed. Now, I'm going to ask you about Ferrari. As a passionate fan of motorsport as you are, how difficult is it to see Ferrari in this position they're in now? Well, I, in a way, I think there's a misperception because... Um, you know, a logo doesn't make you keep the status for forever. So, yes, Ferrari has an incredible history. And I think the whole motorsport, not only Formula One, has to be grateful to a brand like Ferrari. However, because you, you have a red car and you have the prancing horse, it doesn't mean that you are, that you are, you are automatically up there. So sad to see Ferrari basically fighting for midfield but um, I, I think it's part of the game I think you have to look at the positive side and see how difficult it, it is and it's uh, it's enough to miss one small bit and you find yourself in the middle of a, of a bunch of very hungry people and um, and, and, and you have to use your elbow um, I feel sorry for a lot of people who are inside there because there's a lot of good people as in any other team. So, I and the pressure they have. Unfortunately, Ferrari, especially in Italy, is treated in a special way, and um, and and Italians especially are very demanding. So, there's a lot of unhappiness, and and the poor people who are working there nights and and days are uh, are feeling this pressure, and. Um, and it it is difficult and uh, in a way it would be good to wipe off everything and 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 re reset your mind i believe when you get involved in um, in a situation difficult as it is you you lose the ability to perform at the level you you can perform and i think also the drivers when you see for instance sebastian vettel who He's really one of the greatest, and he has done amazing races. Um, and he has won at least two of the championships on on the last round when the pressure was at its highest. And uh, and recently, he, he, I think what he did it doesn't belong to his repertoire and to what he can do. So to me, this is a sign of uh, not really feeling comfortable. And our sport is a. It's a sport where it's a straightforward, it's a sport of technology. If you're good, you, you are able to drive a certain lap time and a certain standard. And, and people do not consider and do not think that um, drivers, as much as engineers, are human beings. They feel the pressure, they, they are insecure when, when things go wrong. And, um, and if they are not in their comfort zone, um, just things do not happen. Many times 
um, it, it is a scientific sport, our sport, but you have to believe in yourself and you have to throw your heart a little bit beyond the obstacle and if you are if you if you fear to make a mistake if you start doubting about yourself uh, just things don't happen the magic thing and the good thing is that all of a sudden when things change you find again the ability of do what you can do because you haven't forgotten just, momentum yeah momentum and, and believing in yourself and this is for me in in a scientific sport as ours uh, even the insiders, they tend to forget how human are, are the humans. And drivers especially, in particular, we, the sport doesn't allow you, the system doesn't allow you to show weakness. You know, in any other sport, football, ski, uh, tennis, you can go through a period of uh, not such a good form. You don't play very well. But people do not doubt about your ability. People do not think, oh, what you, all you have achieved so far was thanks to good machinery. They just think, okay, you are not going through a good period. Let us wait until you find a good form again. It, it happens. It's impossible to have a sportsman who is at the top all the time. In motorsport, it, it's, it's, it doesn't happen. A driver cannot show weakness and team principles they do not uh, and teams they do not feel that so sometimes a driver looks very self-confident it looks like his shoulders are broad but in fact they aren't and um, and often I've seen in 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 many situations where it would be enough to put yourself or somebody else back in a comfort zone to have the best they can do somehow the drivers are seen as an entity who, who has an, a certain ability and will always deliver a certain ability. But it is not the case. So if you compare this cheap way of comparing a driver's ability, uh, teammate versus teammate, if you say sometimes uh, A is stronger than B, then B is stronger than C, but then C is, will be racing against A, and, and A and is stronger than A. So from a mathematical point of view, it doesn't make sense. But this is just, you know, drivers are human being, and sometimes people tend to forget about it. Emmanuel, that is a fascinating take on the situation at Ferrari. Do you like the direction that Formula One is headed with um, cost caps and, and new regulations coming in in 2022? By all means. Uh, since a long time, I thought, uh, um, well, your question is, um, is, uh, is broad. So... Error regulation, yes, by all means, because I think the downforce generated by the underfloor of a car, whether it's a wing or whatever, is a downforce that doesn't leave a lot of turbulence. And when you see Indy cars, they have a hell of a lot of downforce, but they can follow each other quite well. Um, so giving more uh, freedom from on the underbody or generating more downforce from the underbody I think is definitely a, a good way to go in 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 general honestly I feel so sad that there's um, quite some negativeness about Formula One around the world uh, there's a lot of criticism and and maybe I'm an optimistic guy but I think Formula One now is producing beautiful races they, there are a lot of very good drivers inside the car and outside the car. All the new jun the juniors are really, really good people. Do you have a favorite? Uh, because I'm, 
you know, I, I operate as a Formula One steward. I, I cannot not say. Not allowed. <laughs> no, no. But really, I'm, I'm not a fan. Also, I come from Rome. I support both Rome, AC Rome and Lazio. Inside of me, I, I never pick somebody. I just uh, support and like the one who deserves to win. This is not a diplomatic answer. Yeah. Well, let's just say Giancarlo Fisichella. He's a Roman. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. But like Antonio Giovinazzi. But my sense of uh, straightforwardness and honesty goes beyond the persons I like and I don't like. And this is helping me also to to operate as a steward because I, I have sympathies. Uh, for instance, um, when we go back to Canada, when we, we had to penalize Sebastian Vettel for, for, uh, for what he did, five seconds, I... I wanted him to win so badly because I felt sorry for him and I felt he deserved it. But, you know, my sense of responsibility is stronger than that. But all the, the youngsters, you know, Lando Norris, uh, even Daniel Richard, I like personalities and I like people who have the ability, despite the system, which doesn't allow you so much, unfortunately. Not only Formula One, the whole world, because you have to be so careful about not putting a foot wrong which is good in a way, but not so good in a way. But despite that, they have the ability to express themselves. London Norris is, is a very young guy, but he's got a personality and he can share it. Daniel Ricciardo, uh, even Carlos Sainz and, uh, and um, uh, Russell. There's a lot, a lot of good people. So I think Formula One is good. Um, and... Uh, I think it will be even better with Stefano Domenicali uh, stepping in because the, the communication, in my opinion, must improve. The, there's a, too much negativeness around even the media and the stakeholders. They, they criticize the, num- the poor number of overtaking, which to me, it has very little to do with the spectacle because what you want is uh, intensity of a race. You don't, want, you don't measure the spectacle with the number of overtaking. Remember Senna in Monaco, I think it was uh, 92 when he was holding Mansell. For God's sake, this one, one of the masterpieces of driving, but there was no overtaking. So uh, I think Formula One must present him itself in, in a more friendly, friendly way and probably Stefano Domenicali uh, can do that. Emanuele Pirro fighting Davide Valsecchi for the title of F1 Nation Italian correspondent. I think he's put up a good fight Great. there. That was so good to hear from him. Yeah, the passion comes through. The love of the sport comes through. You can see why he's spending his weekends attending Grand Prix in that role. A lot of people, TC, will be intrigued to hear him talk about the agony that he felt dishing out that penalty to Sebastian Vettel. Poor Emanuele, I know. He got a, a lot of abuse on social media for making that call. And I think he he just proved then that, you know, he's just trying to do the right thing. And it's it's head over heart. And to hear him say, I love Sebastian. I didn't want to to penalise him, but he, he has to do what's right. It's a very difficult role being a driver's steward, any of the stewards in Formula One. Very often you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And so I have huge respect for these drivers who have had brilliant careers. As you said at the top, he raced uh, 40 40 Grand Prix between 1989 and 1991, five-time Le Mans winner. And yet he's still opening himself up for all the criticism that comes very often with being a steward. So huge respect to him for that. The one thing I'd say that has totally put F1's penalty 
process into a different light in recent years, I think, is the application of VAR in football and the mess that football is getting into week in, week out with a rule book that has been established for a very long time. I think it casts a better light on how F1 has applied what is a very complicated rule book. I mean, you try explaining to someone, oh, Lewis Hamilton couldn't win the Russian Grand Prix because he parked in the wrong place at the start of the race. No, 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 no. Not when they were forming up on the grid. No, 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 no. The bit before they were forming up on the grid. No, not when the lights went out. I mean, that is a long no, no, no. He was in the pit lane. No, he thing. wasn't in the pit lane. <laughs> I mean, that is how complex the rule book can be and what you can be penalized for. Um, for football right now can't get an offside right. I think F1 does a decent job and I do not envy uh, Emanuele Pirro, especially when you could be dishing penalties out in a championship clinching race. Well, we've nearly come to the end of another F1 nation, but another week, another new Grand Prix. And I'm excited about this one because it looks a roller coaster of a track. TC, F1's heading back to Portugal. Ah, it's going to be fantastic. I've been there once before uh, for a Formula One test that was staged in 2009. Memories of that are it's hugely undulating, bit of a roller coaster ride, lots of blind brows. Overall, I think it was the drivers saying how bumpy the track was. Now, I know it's been resurfaced and I was asking people at the weekend at Goodwood who have been there recently, uh, what are the bumps like now? And they said, well, they've resurfaced the track over the bumps. <laughs> so the bumps are still there, apparently. But it's going to be very exciting to go to a new track because I think a lot of people associate the Portuguese Grand Prix with Estoril. And we haven't had a Portuguese Grand Prix since 1996, TC, but it has a lot of F1 history there. Ayrton Senna's first win and uh, a rather special pass from Jacques Villeneuve, which, apart from winning the championship, probably the highlight of his career is overtaking Michael Schumacher around the outside. Around the outside of the Parabolica Ayrton Senna, that long right-hander at the end of the lap. Uh, that was a very special moment. And that was that was a very special moment. And I think it was the race where Jacques properly arrived in Formula 1. Yes, he'd had a good year in 96, but he'd been beaten really by Damon Hill. It was the penultimate race of that year's championship. And I think everyone thought that Damon was going to clinch it. But the racer in Jacques Villeneuve came through in that race when he went round the outside of Michael Schumacher there. And there was a, certainly a lot of love for him after that Grand Prix. Uh, true, Ayrton Senna's first win in the wet in 1985. He won by more than a minute. Um, in fact, there's a lot of associations with Senna for me and that racetrack. Because I also think of 1993 when Mika Hakkinen, who'd been the test driver for McLaren that year, <laughs> drafted in after Michael Andretti was sent back to America with his tail between his legs. And Mika comes in and immediately out-qualifies the qualifying god that is Ayrton Senna. Okay, by less than a tenth of a second, but it still gave a new narrative and lots for us to talk about. I'll go back and check this, but I'm sure that when Ayrton Senna asked Mika for a technical debrief of how he had beaten him in his debut qualifying session in Formula 1, Mika responded, bigger balls. So it's from Estoril to Portimao. Can't wait. I think it's going to be the sort of track where it's a spectacle, even if we don't get the greatest race, because it is such a good layout. We can't wait. We know that you'll be looking forward to it as well. That's all we've got time for this week on F1 Nation. We will speak to you next. 